I want to encourage you to join me today for a little journey. A little journey through John's first letter. And on that journey, I want to invite you to discover who is a Christian and who is not. That's what we're doing today on this episode. Who is a Christian and who is not? Well, what we're going to do is we're just going to read through the letter uh, of 1 John. Uh, I remember a pastor of mine back in the day said that we would do well to stop preaching at times and just read the text because it was certain, he said, that most people were not. Of course, that would not include you. <laughs> but yeah, for most people, they don't simply sit down and ever read a letter uh, as as John or Peter or James or one of the uh, Gospels was intended to be heard. In fact, the way they were really heard in the first uh, century. And so let's uh, let's do that today. And as we go along, I'm going to invite you to, I'll make some comments. Don't get me wrong. We're going to read through it, but we're going to talk as well. But what I want to invite you to do is listen patiently, listen carefully, and see where John is pointing out to you who is a Christian and who is not a Christian. And then I'm going to want to ask you to consider how that lines up with the theology of your church, the theology of your pastor and elders, and what you have always understood as to who a Christian is and who is not. So let's get right into it. First John uh, chapter 1. I want to say, first of all, that in, in preface, that this letter is being written to counter an um, early form of Gnosticism. Now, that word Gnosticism may not be familiar to all of you, but it simply means a, a form of spirituality that was beginning to make its inroads into the Christian community that was very self-centered, very um, uh, individualistic, and denied the material world, and in fact considered the material world as evil. And the upshot of that is that what you did in your body, with your body, and with whomever you did it, really didn't matter. What really mattered was that you be spiritually pure. And... Um, uh, and so there was some lawlessness uh, coming into the Christian community tied to this form of spirituality. And, of course, that means that if that would, would have taken root and grown and identified Christianity, it would have been a wholesale denial of the person of Jesus Christ and his purity, his holiness, and his even his deity. So uh, it would have been a, a, um, a true denial of the purity of his humanity. It would have been giving in and saying, nope, God created man, and man is just inherently evil. He's going to always be as long as he has a body, and it's only his spirit that is pure. And of course, that is heresy. And we see a lot of that today. Uh, we see a lot of that today, especially in the hyper-charismatic world, 
some of which I grew up in, in which it was common for people to be morally and legally decadent, and still they had the quote-unquote anointing. And it was even thought and taught that it didn't really matter what you did, uh, how awful you were, how many times you'd been married, how many how you treated your family, or or if you stole from your uh, employer or whatever, because if you had the anointing, you could still get up on stage and preach, and you could teach, and because you had the anointing, as if the, the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with creating character in the Christian, and so that was a form of Gnosticism that's been come coming down throughout the ages into uh, the church and is still with us in many respects today. So this is, this is a very applicable study. This is not some exercise in, in academia, uh, especially given the fact that we want to know who is a Christian and who is not. So given that background, John begins this letter by asking or saying, quote, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. So John is beginning to point out to you immediately the materiality of the incarnation. It was a genuine incarnation. Jesus did not just appear to be human. He was human. He had substance. He had flesh and blood and bone. He was a human being, fully human and fully God. And in verse 2, John says, the life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. God's eternal life has been manifested in the flesh in Jesus. We proclaim to you, verse 3, what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So is it possible for the apostles to be feel complete joy while the church is being, being infected with this kind of false spirituality. And we really should try to relate to this today because there is no end in a pluralistic society like ours. There's no end to false spirituality. It's everywhere. It's all around us. Everybody has their own little spiritual take on things. Uh, and it's always, if it's not rooted and grounded in the truth, it's, of course, going to be destructive. So John wants to make clear that is he and the apostles, the apostolic message, very important, the apostolic message that is uh, what he is conveying here. And so, uh, and there is not a second or third or an alternative or a version or a, a plan B. No, there was only one apostolic gospel and that was it. And nobody was allowed to simply take it and twist it and pervert it and make it into something that they wanted to uh, sell because it would give them fame, personal fame, or fortune. Okay, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, 
In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his Son, of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. So we can see that the Christian is someone who walks in the light. They're not walking in presuppositions, or they're not walking in mystery. They're not walking in some kind of spiritual darkness. There's no dark night of the soul, as is so popular in medieval theology. We walk in the light, and this has to do with purity. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his Son purifies us from all sin. So we walk in the light that God has given us, the light of the sun. And as we do, we have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with the sun. And the blood of his son cleanses us, purifies us from all sin. There's no greater cleansing available anywhere. Purity is not inherent within fallen human nature. Purity is something that must be attained. And it cannot be attained while we're walking in darkness, meaning that we are not Christians, while we are um, walking in some kind of false spirituality or counterfeit Christianity. And we must walk in the light, and then we will have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And it's then that we realize that we are being purified by the blood of Jesus, from all sin, by the way. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word is not in us. So we are in this process of recognizing and growing in the purity that is in Christ. And of course, as we do that, we are more heightened aware of those shortcomings. We are more heightened aware of those sins that have, have yet to be rehabituated into righteousness and behaviors that need to be rehabituated. When we come into Christ, we've had, all of us, have had a long history of being an Adam. And the Christian life is made up of people who are uh, rehabituating themselves to their new standing in Jesus Christ. They've gone from being uh, in the evil mindset of Adam into the mind of Christ. They've gone from walking in filth, in moral filth and decadence of Adam into the moral purity and holiness of Christ. And that is the Christian life in a, in a nutshell. It's about moving away from one habituated form of thinking and living into another form of rehabituating ourselves to the image of Christ, the life of Christ in us. He begins chapter 2 with, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. And sin here is something we will want to be careful to define. 
He's including not only practical sin, lying, cheating, thieving. The sin that he's most concerned with is the denial of Jesus Christ as having come in the flesh. So he's concerned with the great sin, which he refers to later on in this letter, as the sin that leads to death, as being a doctrinal sin, a theological sin, a sin in which you have a twisted, perverted view of Jesus Christ. And of course, it does include practical sin too, but there's an overriding cause for every practical sin. And there's nothing like a twisted, perverted, counterfeit view of Jesus to allow sin itself to reign in your life. On the other hand, they have a biblical view. They have the the very view of the Spirit of God uh, revealing to you the person and image of Christ within. There's nothing more purifying than his presence in our lives. Okay, so he uh, it, so he writing he's writing so that we will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Apparently, there were some within this counterfeit spirituality in this area in this region, probably the region of Ephesus in which they were saying that they don't sin. They they may actually sin, but it's really not sin because they're still spiritually pure. And that's what John is countering here. He goes on to say, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. I hope you're making note. Who is a Christian and who is not? Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar in the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is made truly complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Make a note of that one. 1 John 2.6 Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing, and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in that light, or be in the light, but hates a brother or sister, is still in darkness. There's a lot of Jesus and me Christianity. A lot of isolated, singular people who think that they can live out the Christian life and and actually show contempt and hatred for other Christians and withdraw and isolate. He's saying that's a step into darkness. That's not a step into the light. Verse 10, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives... In the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. 
I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So three stages of spiritual development. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. There is no such thing as a worldly Christian. That's like saying we have burning snowflakes or very dry water or it's it's just it's nonsensical. There's no such thing as a worldly Christian. You can be worldly or you can be a Christian, but you can't be a worldly Christian, and that's what he's saying here. If you love the world, if you're still uh, attracted and, and 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 obsessed with the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. None of this comes from the Father, but it's from the world. And it stands in contrast to loving the Father. The world and its desires pass away, and, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now we read a few moments ago, that whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. It's an important point of this very thematic for this letter. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they really did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. We have two very parallel realms coexisting now. This present evil age and the age to come that has been inaugurated, though not yet fully realized, with the coming of Christ. And we know that we are in him. We are in the coming kingdom age and not in this present evil age. We don't belong to both. We have to belong to one or the other. And we know that we are in him. That is, in this current state of now and not yet, where the future kingdom has invaded the present. And we know that because we have the spirit indwelling us. In the same way, that day of the Antichrist that's coming is also already under work. And that is shown in the many Antichrists that are already active in the world. Verse 20, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. 
I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because he comes, and no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see what you have heard. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Which is an important point, isn't it? There are always men and women portraying themselves as Christian ministers who are trying to lead you astray. Now, it may not be conscious on their part. It may not even be deliberate on their part. But they are nonetheless seeking to lead you astray. If it is deliberate, it's because they're trying to draw you away and put the focus on them. The difference between a true teacher of the gospel and a false teacher is the direction to which they point you. Very important. A true teacher of the gospel will always point you to Christ. A false teacher will ultimately point you to his or herself. So there are those who are trying to lead them astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. There's no one going to come along and say, I have a unique, special revelation from God about Jesus, and you can only get it from me. You can only know this special revelation, this unique revelation as being from me. If anybody says that, or if they have a secret revelation, run. Don't walk away from them. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, he goes on to say, not counterfeit, so there's a counterfeit anointing, just as this taught you, remain in him. And now their children continue in him. So he's been talking about remaining in him. And now he's going to talk about continuing in him. So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Let me tell you what happens when you are in Christ, when you are in him. What happens is that you become like him. The one who is a Christian is someone who is like Jesus and is continuing to grow in that model and image of Jesus. Progressive growth. Ever-continuing progress in the image and character of Christ in thought, word, and deed is your greatest assurance that you are in Christ. And so he says in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does uh, what is right has been born of him. Born of him. 
into the family, into the family of God, something that God has done sovereignly in your life. We weren't looking for it. We weren't seeking it. It is something in mercy and, and goodwill and, and grace alone that God brought about in your life through the hearing of the gospel. And this is so much so that John begins chapter 3 with this great exclamation. See, or behold, or look, what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Emphatic. This is not some hallmark sentimentality. This is not so, well, no, we're all God's kids on the creation. Of course, every human being is a child of God by creation. But John is talking about something different. He's talking about being a child of God by recreation, regeneration in by the Spirit into the image of Jesus. And he's marveling in that great status that every believer has before the Father as a child of God in the model and image of Jesus. Do you know that you are loved by the Father with the same love and the same intensity that he loves Jesus? That's what the New Testament teaches. That's why John is marveling. That's why he's saying, look, behold, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. The love that the Father has for Jesus and the love that the Father has for you are not two separate and distinct kinds of love. No, no, no. They are the same love that the Father has for Jesus. He has for you. Dear friends, verse 2, Now, now, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet, so there you go, the now and not yet, been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. When you begin to realize that God is at work conforming you into the image of his son in a very practical way so that your thoughts, your deeds, your emotions, your actions all begin to reflect, better reflect, the person of Christ. It is a motive. It gives you hope. Hope that the world will never be able to share with you. Remember, they're caught up in other things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We are caught up in becoming like Jesus. And when you have that hope in him, you will long only to become more like him. See, that's the great incentive for purification. It's not that God's going to reject this. No, we have been accepted by the Father. We have been accepted under the merits and sacrifice of Christ. It's a permanent acceptance. Now, he may discipline us. He will, because he will 
conform us into the image of his Son. And it's what gives us hope, even in this hopeless world. I saw a neighbor recently, just walking her dog, and I waved at her and said hello and asked how she was. She said, oh, oh I, I'm fine. There's sure a lot going on. I knew what she meant by that. There's a lot going on in the world. There's the election process. There's the political climate violence. There's the war in Ukraine. There's the economic worries. There's a lot happening. There's a trifecta of diseases, COVID, a respiratory virus, and the flu that are beginning. There's a lot going on in people's life. And if they have no anchor for their soul, other than the day-to-day drudgery of being a broken, fallen human being in a broken, fallen world, the hope is the last thing that they feel. But you who are in Christ have this hope in him. That you not only are you a new creation, but the new creation has begun for you. Not only are you under a new covenant, but the new covenant of the Spirit is evidenced by the fact that you have the Spirit dwelling in you. Not only are you a citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. And it is a certain belonging. It cannot be taken away from you. And you are, you are uh, bound for that kingdom in full realization. Whatever happens around us cannot take any of that away from us. Okay, so verse 3, All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appears so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or knows him. I've been a Christian for over 40 years, and I always wondered why I got nauseated every time I heard somebody acting out in some kind of moral deviance and some kind of clearly sinful behavior. And they would simply excuse it by saying, Oh, well, we're all just sinners. We're all just sinners saved by grace. Folks, no, we're not. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Anybody who continues to habitually enjoy sinning and then chalks it up to some kind of Silly philosophical sentimentality that, well, we're all just sinners saved by grace, has yet to understand the gospel and is not a Christian. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Verse 7 Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. And that's one of those key points, those key moments in the letter of John that he just told you clearly who a Christian is. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. 
The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. You cannot live in a, a, a pattern of habitual sin and defiance of God's will and hate your brother and sister and legitimately be called a Christian. You may call yourself one, but you're not. There may be whole churches of people who do that, but they're not. They're not Christians. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. The two themes of the first letter of John is obedience towards God and love for one another. The, the clear, leading characteristics of what a Christian is. Unconditional obedience towards God and love for one another. Therefore, he says in verse 12, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. There's the conflict. There's where the lines are drawn, folks. I spoke with somebody earlier today, and we we're talking about the the battle between the, the the political battle between the left and the right, and all the nasty advertising being done leading up to a um, midterm election, <clears throat> and all the the accusations, and all the heated debates, and all the name calling. There are those Christians today who believe that they can find refuge from the left from the godless liberals by identifying with the right wing. And there are those in the right wing who think they can become the, the paragons of righteousness, even God's righteousness, and declare the United States a Christian nation. But I'm telling you, that is simply placing the line in the wrong place. Yes, there's a line. Yes, there's good and evil. And woe to those who say there isn't or who call evil good and good evil. But we must be careful to place the lines where the line where it really belongs. In other words, we must be careful to place that line where the Bible places it. And we just heard it, didn't we? Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates her brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So where does that line reside biblically? In the truth, the, the line lies between the righteous and the unrighteous. 
And I'm not talking about religious conduct or some kind of, of self-righteousness. I'm talking about those who are in Christ and those who are not. That's the only line, folks. This present evil age or the kingdom of God. And that's where the line falls. Not, not between left and right politically. Now, so we are to love our brothers and sisters. And so John gets very practical now in John 3.16, 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. This is how we know what love is. A lot of talk about love. We all want to be loved and we all want to love. So now John's going to tell us how to do it. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So the love that we are to have for one another as Christians, not as super spiritual, mature Christians, this is a command to every Christian at every stage of spiritual development. This is characteristic of what it means to be a Christian. And that is sacrificial love for your brothers and sisters. Unconditional obedience towards God and sacrificial love for our brothers and sisters. You go the second mile. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So who is the Christian here? The one who loves, not just with words or speech, but with actions and truth. So love that we are commanded to have for each other is a sacrificial love that does not stop short with this words or speech, but with actions and in truth. You truly love your brother and sister. You say, well, I don't love my brother and sister. Well, then start. If you are in Christ, you have the capacity. You have the anointing. You have the Spirit. Simply start loving. Remember, love is a verb. That's what John's saying here. Love is a verb. Love is tied to our actions. Start loving people with your actions and you will kindle the love of God in your heart. This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. How do we know that we belong to the truth and set our hearts at rest? We know because we love each other with sacrificial love. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. If you have a heart and mind that does what God's commands and pleases him, you are in a good place prayer-wise as well you can be assured your prayers will be answered. And this is his command, to believe in the name that is the character, the person, all that he is, 
of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. There you go. There's the will of God for your life. To believe in the character and in the person, all that he's revealed to be in the text of Scripture of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Now, how did he command us? We just learned it a few moments ago, right? Sacrificially and with very practical actions. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. So let me interject. Unconditional obedience towards God. Sacrificial love towards your brothers and sisters. Sacrificial being based in actions, in truth, and not just in words. And now he tells us that it is a gift of the Spirit, is the work of the Spirit in us. This is how we know that he lives in us, We know it by the Spirit He gave us. No one can be unconditional, love God unconditionally, and do His will, and sacrificially love their brothers and sisters apart from the power and the work of the Spirit. It is a work of the Spirit. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5, Therefore I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Okay. We're coming to a close here. Chapter 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Now, if we trust and rely in the Spirit of God, we ought to know whether someone else is speaking by the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Fully incarnate human being. He didn't just appear to be human. He was human. And why is this important? Because our only hope for redemption, our only hope, not only for atonement at the cross, but for the full redemption of our humanity so that we will be restored in fullness, in perfection to what God intended for our human, man, our human beings to be what it means to be human is realized in Jesus Christ. And if somebody comes along and denies that, whether it's saying that he was not truly human or that they'll take a backdoor approach and say, well, I know that I'm a Christian, but I still like to sin. And, you know, so I'm still kind of just a sinner, say, by If you don't see progressive, ongoing rehabituation in your life from living as Adam to living like Christ, then you have serious cause to inquires to whether or not you're even a Christian. So any spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not from God, but is of the Antichrist, 
which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. That's the second time he has said that, by the way. So how do we know the spirit of Antichrist? Because their religion does not involve the redemption, the very real practical redemption of their humanity after the model of Jesus. What I'm saying to you is that we can only know who we are, what it means to be human by gazing upon the humanity of Jesus. After all, it's his image that we're being conformed into. And it's him we will, go, we will be like in all perfection one day. 1 John 3, 3. We just read that. Okay, so you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Those who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh and therefore come to redeem the fullness of our humanity, they are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. And the world listens to them. Who doesn't want to have a sentimental religion? Everyone. The world is filled with sentimental religion. Meaning that we have all the religious activities, but it really doesn't make a very practical impact in your life at all. They are from the world, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Meaning you and I are in the apostolic faith. We and the apostles are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. I really encourage you to spend some time exegeting and studying this last text. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Once again, as I said a few minutes ago, this is where the line falls. It doesn't fall between the political left and the political right. It doesn't fall between black and white. It doesn't fall between people of color and people of the Caucasian race. It doesn't fall between rich and poor. It falls between the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. And we ought to know which side of that we're on. We best know it has eternal consequences. Dear friends, verse 7, Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Don't wait for people to love you to love them. We are called to love as God loves. 
Now, do we have boundaries? Yes. Do we set limits with people? Do we enable their evil behavior? Of course not. If they attack us, do we not try to restrain them? Of course we do. But we still love them. If you're only going to love lovable people, you're going to fall short of loving like God loves. God's love initiates. God loves, God's love sustains. The closest thing we know of that as, as uh, human beings, apart from God, is our love for our children. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Now this is utterly profound. He is saying that the only way that we see God is in our love for one another. If you're very interested If your heart is pure, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. Genuine, spirit-imparted, spirit-enabled love is the way that we make God visible in the world. It's the way that we incarnate, if you will. The love of God is by loving one another. Verse 13, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. The second time he said that. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. Lest we think somehow that all these wonderful things he's calling us to is something we can do. He's reminding us again that this is only accomplished by the spirit. It's not something we can work up in ourselves. And we have seen and testified that this Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. What do you think? Are Christians to be loving people? Are unloving people, people who are habitually unloving, are they Christians? This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Jesus loved perfectly. In John's Gospel, chapter 13, it says he loved his own and he loved them to the end. We are to love with the love of Christ, beginning in our homes, beginning with our families, beginning with our extended families, with our neighbors, with people in the marketplace, in the job place. And we're not to just love the lovable, Worth the love as God loves. And this is the confidence that we'll have at the day of judgment in this world. We 
are like Jesus. See, this is the deal right here. He just sums it up right in that very sentence. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Do you want to have confidence on the day of judgment? Only those in this world who are like Jesus have any grounds, any basis, any legitimate claim to have confidence about judgment. It's only the tangible transformation of our character and our mind and our actions after the model and image of Jesus that gives us any confidence about the coming judgment. Consequently, there is no fear in love. But perfect love dries out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, the fear he's speaking of here is eschatological fear. The fear that everyone in their right mind would rightly have about that day when they're going to be held accountable before God for all of their actions and for their lack of righteousness. And no matter how hard they work, no matter how religious they get, no matter how many times they partake in the sacraments, no matter how many times they go to church, they have this underlying fear if they're not being conformed into the image of Jesus, all they're being is religious. And that will not be enough, and they have every right to fear. But if we're walking in the love of God, after the model and the image of Jesus Christ, so that his very life in us by the Holy Spirit is being worked out in our character, then we have no cause for fear of that day. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Wouldn't it be nice if we had that kind of clarity in our sermons today? Just not in a harsh, unkind, or mean way, but just that kind of clarity. Whoever Whoever uh, claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Simple, clear, lots of lying people claiming to be Christians. Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. There again, we get, make the invisible God visible by our love for one another. And he has given us his command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. There you go. You can't love God and not love your brother and sister in Christ. And not just the lovable ones. I have to stress that. Even those who are unlovable, especially in some cases those who are unlovable. We make the love of God visible. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know the love the excuse me, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. 
You can't say you love God and disobey Him. You can't say you love God and love the world. You can't say you love God and love sin and pleasure. You can't do both. It's like God and mammon. You can't do both. And the New Testament is clear on this point on so many levels. And his commands are, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. So we're not talking about some heavy-based legalism here. We're talking about a relational situation, not a transactional situation, where we keep his commands and hope that we're going to find acceptance someday. That's pure, unmitigated religion. We keep his commands because we have found acceptance, because it is indicative of our new nature in Christ to keep his commands. And guess what? Because of that new nature, because of the enabling spirit in us, those commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It's about faith. It's not about legalism. It's about faith. It's not about works righteousness. It's about faith. But it's a faith revealed in works. Verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And this is the Spirit who testifies. Because it is the Spirit who testifies. Because the Spirit is the truth. You want to know the truth about anything? Wouldn't it be nice we say, to hear the truth. Wouldn't it be nice to know the truth? There's so little truth in the media. There's so little truth in the world. There's so little truth in our leaders. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. No better way to walk in the truth than to develop your relationship with the Holy Spirit through prayer and reading of the Word and loving one another. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. At Jesus' baptism, the water And the Spirit bore witness to who he is. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And the blood, his absolute, unconditional obedience, even to death. Death on a cross was a testimony to Jesus as the Son of God. Whoever believes in the Son of God... Make sure I didn't miss a verse here. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. That's the great message 
that echoes throughout the ages since the baptism of John at the Jordan of Jesus. The great testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has a Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The world's religions can claim to be coexisting and coexistent with Christianity, but that doesn't mean they can give life. The United Nations and certain organizations may claim that all religions have the same value, but only one gives life. Finally, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that, so that, purpose clause, you may know you have eternal life. This brings us back to our earlier point. Who is the Christian and who is not? This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask for of him. And then he gets into some specifics here. If you see a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. What is the sin that leads to death? That has been a point of great controversy and wonder and fear throughout the ages. But it's as simple as this, beloved. The sin that leads to death is a rejection of the revelation of Jesus Christ in order to conform him or to twist him or to make him be something other than the Bible says he is. Many people follow, follow a certain, quote, Jesus, end quote, that's not the Jesus of the Bible at all. Many people have a view of Christ who are in the mainstream evangelical world that is not the Jesus of the Bible. That's the sin unto death. It's a serious sin. It's so serious that no one who habitually commits themselves to a twisted, perverted view of Jesus Christ. He says, don't even bother praying for it. There's no hope for them as long as they hold that view. On the other hand, we do know that any sin that is truly repented of will be forgiven. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to deny the Spirit's witness of the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. There's the earlier theme. The one who does, the one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. 
we know that we are children of God. And the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know that also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. End quote. End of the letter. What is an idol? Now, John may have been speaking of other idols, literal idols, stone, marble, statue idols. But he's most certainly speaking of any form of counterfeit Christianity that presents to you some other Jesus, just like Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Some other Jesus and propagates some other spirit and preaches, therefore, another gospel. This is why this has been so important today to do this discussion and to take this time to read this letter. Because it is so powerful in helping us place the lines where they belong between truth and falsehood. Between the true witness of the Spirit to who Jesus is and a bunch of counterfeit Christs in the world today. Well, I hope this has been helpful to you. I hope you listened to it many times. I hope you take, took some notes. And I hope you come away with a good answer for with the question, who is a Christian and who is not? Amen.